it's almost halftime. I know what you're thinking. No, that game hasn't even started. Yeah, I aren't talking about that game. Um, although there is a game tonight. I don't even know who's playing. Does anybody care who's playing tonight? Or are all we just still a little sad and grievous that, uh, one, the Texans aren't playing, and two, that the Saints got a really bad call? Really, really bad call. Just totally unfair. Well, it's almost halftime here in our Multiply two-year initiative. Seems like just yesterday when we kicked off and launched that exciting new initiative that we are now moving towards halftime. And as I mentioned in the video, we have a few weeks here. We're going to take some time and have some fun with Multiply, and we're going to call it Flourish. In fact, when you came in, I hope you received one of these books. It's a Flourish, Midpoint of Multiply a Journal. If you don't have one, we want to get you one. So <clears throat> some of our pastors and ushers and greeters are going to have a handful. If you didn't get one when you came in, would you wave your hand and let us bring you one? Uh, it's, we've got enough for everybody to have one, and we want you to get one. So as one of these folks walk by, just wave at them, call their name, throw something at them if you have to, to get their attention. But you're going to want one of these. And while you're getting that, if you noticed in your worship folder, there's also a commitment card. Now, the good news is you're not going to fill that out and turn that commitment card in today. Nope, we have a few weeks to go. But you will notice on the card that there are three amazing opportunities to engage in Multiply for the second half of Multiply. It may be that your step would be just to get in because a number of folks have come along with us in the last year and haven't had an opportunity to know what to do, so this is your chance to get in for the first time and to be a part of this Multiply journey by making a 12-month commitment for the second half of Multiply. Others of us made a commitment a year ago, and we've been working at it, but it may have been challenging, maybe a little difficult, maybe harder than we first thought, or some circumstances have changed. Well, our opportunity will be simply to stay in, to say that was the number God put on my heart, that was something God shared with me, gave me to give, and we're going to keep going. We're going to stay in and keep our commitment to give to the Lord and trust Him. And we're going to have the same faith to finish that we had when we started. Now, there's a third category of us who made a commitment, and it was a generous commitment, I'm sure. Maybe even called for sacrifice. But God has blessed you in some ways you didn't anticipate or didn't expect. And you're wondering now, are, are you still being stretched? I'm wondering, am I still engaged? Am I still growing? Is the Lord still taking me outside of my comfort zone and revealing Himself and showing me more of Himself than I've ever known? Well, that third, third box is just simply to step up. But some of us have made a commitment that we might be able to actually exceed. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing if we could go further even than we thought we could go? Well, the date's not until the first Sunday of March, so we have a few weeks, but I want you to put that card somewhere where you'll see it so that you can remember and pray over it and think through it. And in that journal, it'll give you some information sort of by way of review as well as anticipation, which we'll do for these next few weeks. We're going to celebrate this last year and all God has done and give you some more key and critical steps going forward for this next year. And if you'll thumb through this notebook, you'll come about to the middle where you'll see a section for journaling and for sermon notes. I hope you'll go there with me now. And as you do, you can find in your Bibles Acts and the first chapter. The book of Acts where we're going to be considering a church that flourished against all the odds. Acts chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I'll ask you this question, really. How in the world are we here today? I don't mean like, how did you get here? I hope you know that. But how are you a part of a church today? How are you a part of this church today? How is there even anything called church today? Here or anywhere? 
Now, I'm not a gambler. I want you to know that. I'm not a gambler, but I do know that tonight the odds are in favor of the New England Patriots. I think they're favored by about two and a half points, which isn't much. I, I don't think that's a whole lot. Now, I don't understand how all this works, but I'm told that, that the odds makers predict, based on all the factors and variables and everything they have to choose from to use, uh, they choose a team that's going to win, and then they choose by how much that team's going to win, and then they choose the total number of points that those two teams will score together. I think that's called the... Uh, Y'all are scared to tell me because you know I'll know you know. Well, I researched it. I think it's called the spread. Can I get an amen? No? I understand. Oh, it's a bit awkward for Baptists to have this conversation. Just saying. There's a lesson here. So somebody looks at every factor and all the variables and cooks up some formula to say, we believe this is going to happen and here are the odds against it and here are the odds for it and then you can lose all your money proving whether they're right or wrong. I have a suspicion that if there had been odds makers, and there probably were, who took a look at the early church in those early days of the church, I think the odds are pretty good that the odds would have been pretty bad. In fact, I think they would have looked at this straggling bunch of nobodies and outsiders and said, zero chance, zero chance. I mean, think about all they faced. In historical Judaism, this upstart sect following a cursed leader they called Savior. Think about the false gods and the hostile pagan religions. Don't forget about Rome uh, as a state and, and also as a religion with its imperial cult. I mean, just think about the fallen nature within us that would resist whatever the church might take us to or want us to become. Think about the world system that surrounds us, that's set in opposition against the church. Think about the devil himself and every demon in hell lining up against the church. I suspect the odds makers would have said, not going to happen. Don't waste your money. Never bet on the church. But I'll tell you something else. The odds makers would have been wrong. Because you ought to never bet against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ought not to bet at all. But if you were betters, you would bet for the church. You would. And how is it even possible that this church against all odds, when it wasn't even given a chance to survive, no chance to thrive, forget about flourishing, this thing will never make it, except for, ta-da! Here we are. We're still here against all the odds and flourishing as the body of Christ. I think you'll see some of the seeds of that flourishing right here in Acts chapter 1. And as we look back, not only for history's sake, but to learn the lessons and look towards our future on how the church continues to do more than survive, but to thrive and to flourish, even if the odds are still against it. I'll take those odds, because the church is going to flourish. Why? Well, let me give you reason number one, and then we'll read from verse one. Reason number one, the church is going to flourish because the church belongs to Jesus. We are His team. Listen to chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I love that phrase, began to do. 
until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I love that phrase. All that Jesus began to do and teach. So we start with the history of the church, as it were, with the phrase, Jesus began. The church is no human idea or initiative or invention. The church is divine in design. It's His church. Matthew 16, I will build, Jesus said, my church. Not your church, not our church. I know what we mean when we say my church, and I don't take offense. I don't think the Lord takes offense when we take ownership in the sense of pride in connecting and joy in fellowshipping and being a part of something that we are a part of, right? Come to my church with me. I love my church. That's fine. We understand that. But we also understand the limits of that phrase because saying come to my church, I love my church, my church is a good church, is never taking ownership of his church. But simply saying we are connected to his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. It's his. And as surely as Robert Kraft owns the Patriots and Stan Cranky owns the Rams, Jesus Christ owns the church. In fact, let me introduce you to one of four words I want to give you today to frame this conversation. And that first word is ownership. Ownership. And if there's any doubt as to the ownership of the church then check the receipt of purchase. Jesus presented himself alive. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Meaning, check the receipt. Check the bill of sale. Check the certificates and the paperwork of ownership. Jesus owns the church. Not only because it was his divine design, it was his initiative, it was his idea. But then he purchased it with his blood. Redeeming her, us, you and I, from sin and from death and from hell and the grave. Purchasing us back with his own blood. Buried and raised again, which was the seal of approval, which was proof of purchase, which was the receipt which said, paid in full. That's what Jesus said when he said it is finished. The debt is paid. I own it. I paid for it. I bought it. With his own blood. Buried there, showing complete investment. And raised again, showing complete victory. So the church is his church. It's his body. The church, the church of, by, and for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his church. We, as the church, are his, which informs our identity and extends to us a certain responsibility. We are his. No, you're not. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. I've been in the locker room at halftime. I've heard head coaches say, Do you know who you are? You're the warriors. You're winners, not wimps. In spite of the whimpering that was going on around the the room, there was some of that. Oh, because of who you are, I've been told many times, are you quitters? 
No, coach. Then don't act like a quitter. Are you winners? Yes, coach. Then play like a winner. So there's a connection, you see, between identity and responsibility. See, when we are his and we've been bought with the price and we're his prized possession, we then have something to live from and someone to live up to. We are his. The church flourished. The early church flourished because they had a profound idea and sense and awareness of who they were and whose they were. And they played accordingly. We are the body of Christ. We ought never live beneath the standard that he has set by virtue of his ownership. The church belongs to Jesus. Which means... Who we are and whose we are. And all that we have is His. Number two. The church belongs to Jesus and He and He alone calls the plays. Don't worry, there's no football game next Sunday. But for the sake of the day, can we have a little fun with football? Jesus and He alone calls the plays. Look at verse 4. And while staying with them, He ordered them. Not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he owns us, the team as it were. And when they had come together, they asked him, after the play he'd sent in, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So this is a huddle conversation. I want you to sort of get in the game here for a minute. The play has been sent in. He's called the play. Stay, wait, be baptized. And if we were to borrow from verse 8, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But just before they call break in the huddle... And run up to the line to snap the ball and run the play. Someone in the huddle says, "Uh, hold on a minute, coach. Hey, just curious, is is today the day that you take the throne and we get our rightful seats at your right hand and left to rule over the nations? Is today the day we win? And let me tell you what this is. This is a Hail Mary. This is a call to end the game. This is the nuclear option. He's put in a play that is a process that will take this team to the nations, and to circle the globe for the sake of the gospel and for his kingdom and for his glory. And somebody in the huddle says, hey, can't we just go for it all? Can we just like run one play and just be done with this? That's called an audible, by the way. It's a change of plays. See, you got to give them a little credit here. I think we treat these guys too harshly. They'd been through a horrific first half. I mean, it had been a very difficult journey to this point. They were beat up, run down, wore out. They'd been through so much in seeing Jesus on that cross and buried. And then from the low of the lows to the highest of the highs, they're thinking victory here, folks. And by the way, he's been teaching for 40 days about the kingdom of God, and they're ready for it. It's hard to be critical of these guys. Except when he hears the talk of audible, uh, he corrects and redirects the conversation in verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's what we call snapback. (laughs) That's a reality check. That's a Geico commercial where he says, stay in your lane, boys. Stay in your lane. 
Because he's reminding them, you see, he sees the big picture here. You know, he's in this case the coach up in the press box who sees all the moving parts on the field with a greater perspective. And he recognizes where the strengths and the weaknesses are and who's playing head-to-head with whom and what defense is setting up across from the ball. He knows this particular play will run better in this particular circumstance. And although sometimes NFL quarterbacks will audible at the line of scrimmage when the defense shifts, generally speaking, even Tom Brady asked his quarterback coach and play caller, hey, have you got one more touchdown play for it? He's got to stay in his lane. And so do, does his church. It's not for you know the times or the seasons. You're thinking above your grade here. You're, you're out beyond your capacity to understand and to think about this. So we've got to get back to the play that he's been called. So let me introduce a second word to you. The first word was ownership. The second word is lordship. Lordship. Because I could put this in discipleship terms and say it in this way, uh, that we are advancing now from ownership to lordship when we recognize that we are not only his, but we are his to command. The plays are his to call. And in non-football lingo, we might introduce words here like obedience and trust and surrender and sacrifice. Yes, coach. What would you like me to do next, coach? How would you like me to do that? I believe the early church flourished because it stuck to the game plan, his plan. And they ran the play that he'd sent in. I mean, think about it this way. If he'd have let them audible in that huddle and throw that Hail Mary and win that touchdown, uh, the game-winning touchdown, what would have become of the 3,000 people who just 10 days from that day would be saved hearing the gospel in their own languages on the day of Pentecost? What of those 3,000 people? What would have become of the 5,000 people after the 3,000? What if the multitudes of people downline from there, if he'd allowed them to throw that Hail Mary, win the game, and not even play the second half, but take their rightful seats as saints? What about Antioch and Asia Minor? What about over into Galatia? What about over into Greece and into Italy, to Rome? What about further over into Spain? What about that big pond they call the Atlantic Ocean? What about the eastern seaboard of the United States of America? What about Texas? If that had been it, I mean, if it had just come down to this, let's win this thing and go home. What about us? See, Jesus had in mind before the second half began, that we would take the field in these days and play the game in this time. I'm glad that Jesus didn't let them change the play, call the day, win the game, and end it all. By the way, see, that's the thing. is If all God saved us for was for heaven, why are we still here? I mean, if the only purpose God had in saving us from our sin is getting us into heaven forever, what are we doing here? Wouldn't He have just taken us in that very moment and completed it and been done with it? I mean, wouldn't He just declare victory over it and call it a day? Why are we still here? For the same reason He left them there to play the second half. 
to snap the ball, to run every play, to run every play that was called until the clock finally expired at zero. I think that's the flourishing of the early church. They get this, they realize this. That this was an opportunity to play the game then for them in that second half of opportunity and play they did. They got in the game so that others could get in the game. They ran the play so others could run the play. They said yes to the Lord Jesus Christ who's not only owner of the church but calls every play and get in the game and run the play. That's why we're still here. And listen, for some of us over the next few weeks I can tell you That the Lord Jesus Christ who died to save you and to redeem you has a play for you to run. A purpose for you to live. That commitment card that I handed you, ask you to hold on to, think about, pray about, talk about amongst your family members, your spouse. That card may very well be the play that he has for you to run. The play that results in somebody else getting in the game. It's about ownership, but it's also about lordship. Let me show you a third reason I believe the church flourished. You'll find it in verse 8, if we haven't already given it away. And that's this, that he gives us all we need to succeed. Look again, verse 8, it says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria And to the end of the earth. (laughs) Now that's a tall order right there. That is a big call. By the way, there are 11 guys in this conversation. The 12th has defected, so to speak. It's betrayed. So 11 guys in a huddle outside Jerusalem. Uneducated. With very little experience. Not only had they never been to seminary, they weren't public speakers. They weren't apologists. They were fishermen and a tax collector and other tradesmen from various walks of life. And Jesus says to 11 guys, go win the world. (laughs) Take this gospel, everything you've seen, everything you've learned, what you've experienced, and circle the globe. No internet. No mass transit. No planes, trains, no automobiles, no social media, no Twitter, no Snapchat, no Instagram, no Facebook. You, 11 fellas, get going. And tell everything you know to everyone you meet as far as you go. And can't you just imagine them in that moment feeling the weight of that call? Wait a minute, coach. You want us to run what play? And in some sense here, these guys are thinking survival. Hello? They've been through sort of a tough time and they had seen Rome's response and Judaism's response to this way. And, and Lord, coach, are, are you saying stick our necks out and run the risk of... It's a pretty tall order. And it would have been right for them to say... How in the world are we going to do that? And the answer is here. You will have what you need. Just use what you have. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit 
comes upon you. And if we read forward, and we will in the coming weeks, you will see that the Holy Spirit of God fell on them, this small group of otherwise ordinary, not extraordinary, not superhuman, but supernaturally empowered with divine strength and energy, that little group of people with those resources became an unstoppable force. Think of the word, if you will, stewardship. Ownership, lordship. Now think of stewardship. Because the early church flourished, not on their human effort, but divine energy. And yes, God still calls, plays for His church and for us as individual members of His church that are beyond our ability, that are outside of our comfort zone. Listen to me carefully. If we are aiming at a target that we can hit with or without God, that target is too low. You see, without faith, it's impossible to please God, which means God is not going to call us to do what we can already do without Him. That wouldn't please Him because that wouldn't honor and glorify Him or put His strength, His power, and His might on display for the whole world to see. But when God speaks and when God calls, you can count on this. He's going to call us out of our comfort zone and beyond our natural capacity to do what we could only do in His strength and in His power. Count on that. If it's too easy, it's not God. If it's too safe, it's not God. If it's too comfortable or too convenient, it's not God. But when you feel that stirring, when you feel that inner wrestling, when you feel those fears and doubts and resistances, that's when you say, do I have it? Do I have enough of it? Can I do it? Your answer at first would be no. But then in the back of your mind, a little whisper of the Holy Spirit says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Pastor, I'd love to do more. I wish I could do more. I want to do more. I just can't. And can I just be real honest with you for a minute? If you say you can't do what God's called you to do, you are saying more about God than you are saying about you. Because God will give you Everything you need to do everything God calls you to do. I mean, what kind of God would call you or command you to do something that you can't do and then not give you what you need to do it to be faithful in the doing of it? Does that make sense? Or does it make more sense that when God calls you to do something that you can't do, the reason He's calling you to do what you can't do is so that you'll rest and rely on Him to do it through you? Let me tell you about that card, folks. We're not going to do this every week, but just to get it started, that card is an expression of your faith, not in what you can do, but what God can do through you. It was that way 12 months ago. It's that way now. It'll be that way 12 months from now. And when you hold that card with fear and trembling and you say, I've done all I can do, or I can't do anything, or I've done all I'm going to do, just listen for that still, small voice that empowering divine energy of the Holy Spirit of God that says, yeah, but you hadn't tapped into what I can do yet. Think about stewardship. We have what we need. We just need to use what we have. Some people call it the wind of the Spirit, and I love that. Because we're just a little sailboat 
on a still lake or sea. We don't even have oars. I mean, we could hang our arm over and do some of this, maybe move in circles or something, you know. But we just don't, it's just, the boat's not made to work in its own power. It's got a sail. And that sail is just there to catch the wind. Oh, but when it catches the wind, it begins to make progress. We need the wind of the Holy Spirit to move forward in any spiritual endeavor, period. But I know something else about that wind of the Spirit. Sometimes it's referred to as the second wind of the Spirit. Pastor Jeff, you know anything about the second wind? He and Pastor Steven Vasquez ran the Houston Marathon. It's the second time Pastor Jeff has run the marathon. I'm told, I'm told that when an athlete pushes himself beyond the point that they can sustain, that something in there happens if they're willing to push past the wall, to stretch, to lean into it. Just to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I'm told, <laughs> I don't know that I could say I've experienced, when every muscle and your lungs and your heart and your brain says, stop, stop, you're killing us. But something inside says, no, I'm trained for this. I'm prepared for this. I know that if I take one more step or go one more mile, I can make it. And something in there happens called the second wind, this burst of adrenaline, this something that happens biologically within our bodies that gives us ability that we didn't have to do things we couldn't do. Let me just tell you, there are times in life where we get right out there over the limit and beyond our capacity trying to do what we just can't do and everything and everyone says stop, but something inside says you can do it. Keep going. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep obeying. Keep walking. And when you get to the end and people say, how'd you do that? How'd that happen? You'll be able to say, well, it wasn't me. But something happened along the way that I just can't tell you. Something happened that just gave me what I needed to do what I couldn't do. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll run the play. The magnitude and the scope of the play was enormous. But listen, God is bigger than any challenge we face. Think stewardship. He gives us all we need to succeed. And finally, think championship. The fourth word. Because fourthly, I want you to notice, and in verse 9 you'll read, Jesus is coming again, which means he and we are going to win. Listen to verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have seen him or saw him go into heaven. So that's why I like the word championship, because right here, before we go out of the locker room to play the second half, those last two quarters, when we're beat up and run down and we're exhausted and we're tired and that enemy just seems to be getting momentum and growing in their efforts and energy, resolved to just run over us, we look out there ahead at the end of the fourth quarter and we get a little preview, a little glimpse in advance of the victory that is to come. We get a little preview of the trophy ceremony and we see our owner and we see our captain and our king. And we see our coach standing on that platform and holding up that trophy of victory which is, by the way, you and me, his church. 
And suddenly we find something deep within us that says, well, good grief, if that's how this whole thing ends, let's go get started with it. See, the championship's already been predetermined, as it were, which changes everything about how we play the second half, doesn't it? It means we totally get it, how they must have felt. And in the midst of this, what I might call an angelic halftime speech, while they're standing and gazing into heaven, two men, angels, I would suppose, come and they pep them up and they pick them up and they send them back to get on that field again and play that game again and give their best again and never quit again because you're winners and your coach is a champion and you can't possibly lose. You, you don't hear that in the text. I hear passion and determination and a sense of urgency. Why are you doing, guys? Halftime's over. It's time to get back on the field. Jesus is coming again. The victory is assured. Now get out there and play the game like the winners that you are. See, I think sometimes we just need an angelic pep talk. A little halftime pick-me-up. Uh, like the one I want to show you from the angel named Tim Tebow in the locker room at halftime of the national championship game. Watch. Hey, let's go. Get in here. Let's go. Get in here right now. Get in here. Hey, we got 30 minutes for the rest of our lives. 30 minutes. 30 minutes for the rest of our lives. That's our battle in the first half. It ain't happening. We get the ball. I promise you one thing. We're going to hit somebody, and we're taking it down the field for a touchdown. I guarantee right. you that. Guaranteed. Look at me. Look at me. Let's go. We got 30 minutes. Let's go. For the rest of our lives. For the rest of our lives. Let's go. Let's go. Lock goals. Hey. Hey. We have team. Hey. Lock goals. Lock goals. Hey. Put the heart on the table. Hey. We got it. Show up. Let's go. Now, some people would say that guy's crazy. He's lost it. The people who have been in locker rooms recognize passion when they see it and determination when they see it. People who have been in that situation know what a sense of urgency looks like and how it feels and what it says when it says, guys, this is it. We will never walk this way again. We will never live in this moment again. We've got two more quarters, 30 minutes in college football. 30 minutes to remember for the rest of our lives. And I showed you that because I want us to get a sense of the urgency that we are living in a day and time when 30 minutes really does change forever. When 30 minutes, meaning the next half, the rest of the game, the second part of this endeavor that we're in, really will change eternity for some people, really will change forever for some people. And I think this early church flourished because they had that same sense of passion and determination and urgency. Jesus is coming again, boys. Let's go. This is it. We have forever to celebrate, but we have just a little bit of time to win the victory that we'll celebrate forever. Take the field, boys. Men and women, take action Get back out there in the streets of Houston. Get back out there in your communities and in our homes and in our workplaces and in our school places and realize this is it. And then the sound of the alarm, the bell, the clock, the trumpet. And time is no more. And Jesus, who ascended, descends and calls the game complete. 
takes his place on the trophy stand and holds up his trophy of victory, showing the grace and the power of that grace and the people of that grace. I used to work hard when my dad left me a list of chores to do because I knew he was coming back. And knowing he was coming back gave me a certain sense of passion and determination and urgency. Because when that white Ford pickup truck came up that hill and turned the corner and turned into my driveway, I wanted him to catch me working. I wanted him to discover me doing my job. I wanted him to see me giving my best to honor him, my dad. And I used to love when he popped out of that truck and walked over to me and said, Good job, buddy. This looks really good. As a boy, that blessed me. Let me tell you something Jesus is coming again. I hope he finds us working, serving. Sharing, giving, loving, reaching, winning. I hope he finds us running the play he sent in. In just a few weeks on March the 3rd, I'm going to ask you to do something with that card. And don't worry if you lose it, we'll have more. (laughs) And that something is something that reflects your next step at this stage of the journey. It's just halftime. But we'll have 12 months to go. And folks, let me just say to you honestly, we need a good second half. We need to have the best second half of our lives. We need to go out there, no matter how we feel after the first half, no matter what we've faced, no matter what's going on on the scoreboard, no matter what the prognosticators are saying, or the announcers are saying, or the other team is saying. We need to go out here after this half, and we need to get back on that field, and we need to play 30 minutes of our very best football. We need to give everything we've got. We need to be focused. We need to be passionate. We need to be engaged. We need to be loving each other and serving each other. And we need to give all we've got, because this is all we've got, and then it's over, boys, and we'll have all of eternity to celebrate and rejoice all that God has done in these next two quarters of life. Because folks, this is the big game with forever at stake. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that the truth of God's word is both encouraging and uplifting to you. If you'd like more information about our church, service times, or locations, or if you have a question about what you heard today and you want to connect with someone, I want to encourage you to visit us on our website at championforest.org. Have a great day and God bless.